All right, Romans chapter 7, that is where we're going to be. If you haven't had a chance to turn there, turn there, and uh, we'd love, we'll get there in just a few minutes. It happened to me again this week, uh, it's not the first time, probably won't be the last time, that I was driving someplace and I was late. Anyone ever done that? Everyone ever drive and be late? Yeah? What do you do when you drive late? Yeah? Here's what I did. Started tailgating the car in front of me, driving real close, right? Because it's going to be a light that's going to change, and I want to make sure I get that same green light or yellow light or pinkish light that, um, that they're getting. I don't want to miss that, so I'm, I'm driving real close. I'm driving down Cambridge Street, and even though the car in front of me is driving the speed limit, I'm trying to pass them anyway because I have got some place to be. That's what I'm doing. I'm talking to myself. I'm talking about the other drivers. I'm looking at, you know, my little GPS navigation on my phone and out and switching between that and my windshield, just wondering, okay, come on, did that take one minute off? Can I get one minute closer? Am I the only one who does this, right? This is doing all this stuff and hoping that when I maybe pass someone that they don't notice the Mount Hope School sticker on the back of my car <laughs> that's there that brings me a, probably the most conviction is having that Mount Hope School magnet on the back of my car. And I'm doing all this on my way to a prayer meeting, <laughs> right? On my way to, to pray to the one who says, don't be anxious about anything, Don't worry about anything, but trust the Lord. And here I am driving, probably not too kindly, maybe on the edges of some of the, uh, you know, legalities of our driving instructions. But it's strange, right? I mean, I wonder what it would be like if a cop pulled me over and I'm like, I'm on my way to a prayer meeting. Like, I'm a pastor. Like, I literally get paid to help people obey the law. Like, that's, I don't know. It's strange when we sometimes, uh, our actions don't line up with what we know we believe and who we want to be, right? And that happens to all of us at times, where the things, if we're a follower of Christ as a Christian, there are times in our lives where what we believe and the person we want to be doesn't seem to line up with maybe our actions in that moment or what we're doing in that moment. It doesn't have to be driving. It happens in all kinds of places. Maybe it happens as a parent. And your kids, you know, you'd do anything for them. You love them, you're, you know, they're your world, you know, but you've told them a thousand times. And I don't know how you finish that sentence, but there is something. You've told them a thousand times, and then they do it, or they don't do it. And then what happens? You, you know, everything about teachable moments goes out the window. You're not thinking teachable moments. You are yelling at them to stop yelling at you. And we don't yell in the, you know, you ever find yourself yelling about we don't yell in this house? You start, you start, you're the person, not, your actions don't line up with who you want to be. You come away from that and you go, that's not who I want to be. That's not even who I, like, that doesn't line up. Or maybe you're dating someone and you you got in a relationship and you want to honor God and honor the Lord in that relationship and you've established boundaries in order to do that. And yet you feel tempted to move those boundaries. And maybe for the last couple weekends now, you've taken things further than you know you should. And you don't want to, but in that moment, you don't not want to. And you start and you come away and you go, that's not the person I want to be. How is it that I'm a follower of Jesus? How is it that I'm going to go to church on Sunday? And yet my actions and my life don't line up with who I want to be. 
Or maybe you know that certain streaming shows are not good for you. That they fill your mind with ungodly thoughts that you can't seem to shake. You rationalize that you're watching them just for the entertainment or just because everyone else is watching them and you want to be able to talk about them when someone else and have a conversation with them. But when you're honest with yourself, you know that it's not just that. That it excites something in you. That there's a feeling that you're indulging in that moment with that. And you recognize that that's not really the person you want to be. Why do we do that? How is it that those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus end up at times acting in ways that we would say don't line up with the people we want to be? In fact, it's often the first place that non-Christians will go to justify their unbelief. Look at that person who said they were a Christian and then did that. Look at the abuse scandals. Look at the infidelity scandals. It's apparent proof that God is not real. Times in our lives where we end up acting in ways that we don't want to act that aren't in line with our beliefs. Why do we do that? We're in this series called I Follow Jesus. How can it be that I follow Jesus and, but why do I still sin? Right, we're going to address these questions each week. We're going to say, I follow Jesus, and we're going to address a question. Last week it was, I follow Jesus, but why did he have to leave? And we learned that Jesus tells us that he left so that the Holy Spirit could come and live within us. And throughout this series, we're going to talk about what that means to live our life with the Holy Spirit within us. But this morning, I want to frame our discussion with this question, I follow Jesus, but why do I still sin? Why do I still end up doing things that aren't in accordance with who I am? Why do I still end up driving that way, talking that way, acting that way? Why is that? Why, why is we still have the struggle in, in our lives? So let's talk a few minutes about that question because I think it's an important one. It's one that oftentimes that others look at and say, well, if you follow Jesus, how come you you're doing this or you're not doing that. You, if you feel this way and if you can identify with this struggle, uh, you're not alone. In fact, this struggle has been going on since, uh, well, the very beginning of the church. And some of the most powerful uh, people, men and women of God who have uh, followed Jesus, they all struggle with this. And so in Romans chapter 7, we come to the words of the Apostle Paul. And so if you'll turn there, Romans chapter 7, and we're going to pick up and start in verse 15. And we're going to look at the Apostle Paul who struggled with this idea of following Jesus and yet still struggling with sin in his life. And why is that there and what do we do about it? Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul is writing to this church at Rome, and he's talking about his struggle with this, and he says this, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Anyone ever feel like that? Right? It's like I read one uh, author this week who said it's, what Paul is saying here is like, it's like a golfer that steps up to the tee, Right? And some of you are excellent golfers, and when you step up to that tee, the ball goes exactly where you want it to go. But let me tell you how it goes for me. 
step up to that tee and where I want it to go, what I want to do is 250 yards right down the middle of the fairway. What I don't want to do is to slice it into the woods. And yet I do that. And so I put down another ball and I slice that into the woods. And this is the type of feeling Paul's talking about. I want to do this and I don't want to do that. And I end up doing the thing I don't want to do. And I am not doing the thing I want to do. And that's the struggle he's kind of framing. And that's what he's, he's talking about there. And then in verse 16, it says, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Let me just unpack that for a minute to see what's going on. Because Paul said a couple things there that, that can be a little confusing. He's saying, look, if I desire to do what God wants me to do, he, and he calls that the law, he tells that the law of God, like the law that God had revealed, this moral law of how you and I are supposed to live our lives. If I desire to live my life that way, that means I agree that that's good, that's right, that's what I should be doing. Like I'm for it. But if I don't do it, then it means there's something in me, and he uses the term flesh, and he's not talking necessarily just about this, this, right? What we wouldn't say when we say flesh. When he uses the term flesh, what he's talking about is that sin nature that lives within us that desires to just do what I want to do and forget what God wants to do. And I just want to follow my own desires, and he says, there's these two things at war. There's, there's, this, there's this desire within me because I'm a Christian to do the things that God wants me to do. And then there's this desire within me, this flesh to do what I want to do. Can anybody relate to that? Right? I mean, we've had that. We all understand that. And he says, uh, just uh, in verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he just goes this back and forth, right? He's saying, I want to do good. I end up doing evil. It's close at hand. It's a struggle. This is what's going on inside him. And then he kind of throws up his hands in verse 24 and says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's what he says it feels like. It feels like, you know, I'm just living in this body of death, that I have this dead body that I'm, that, that I'm attached to, that it's constantly like weighing me down. And this is what it feels like, this struggle. And then verse 25 says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul is talking about this fight and this struggle. 
that I don't think it takes much of a jump for us to understand what he is wrestling with. And the truth is this, this I I think is the truth we have to understand is when you commit your life to Jesus, you enter into the battle. Now, if you don't commit to following Jesus, that's you're not in the battle. You can go and live your life the way you want to live your life. You don't have to deal with this struggle of now God has called me to live a certain way and I want to live that way and I'm endeavoring and efforting to do that and I can't do it and I'm feeling this internal struggle. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't worry about it. You're out of the fight. You don't have to worry about that struggle. But when you come to Jesus, just know you're entering into a new part of the battle. So someone told you, oh, come to Jesus, life will be easy. They lied to you. Come to Jesus, life will be harder. That's, that's the truth because God's going to call you to do things that before you didn't have to worry about doing. God's going to call you to love people that before you didn't have to worry about loving. God's going to call you to sacrifice in ways that before you didn't have to worry about sacrificing. And there'll be this struggle with this internal nature within you that doesn't want to do it. And yet this part of you that says, yes, but that's what God wants me to do. And I want to please God. And you are in a battle that happens. And what you want, one thing you need to understand is the struggle against sin is a sign of your faith in Christ, not that you are not a Christian. Because I've had conversations, and maybe you have, or maybe you felt this way, but some people will say, you know, I'm struggling with this. I don't even think I'm a Christian. I, I don't even think, and, and my response is always, if you're in the fight, you're in the faith. Because if you're not in the faith, then you don't have to worry about the fight. It's not a fight. You, you just follow your own desire. You, but if there's something within you that's endeavoring to follow what God wants you to do, it's going to feel like a fight, and that's a sign that you're in the faith. That you're no longer, as Paul's going to say in a minute that we're going to look at in chapter 8, you're no longer hostile to God in your mind. Your mind wants to serve God, but your flesh and your body are pulling you in a different direction, and so you're in the fight. It's going to be a battle. There's this war that takes place between the old self, the flesh, and the spirit that's within us. And what we often don't realize when we come to Christ is that we, prior to coming to Jesus, especially if you come to Jesus later in life, you have lived a lifetime conditioning your body and your mind on into certain patterns and habits. And you have conditioned and habituated your body into those things. And when you come to Christ, it'd be nice if God just, all right, now reset, start over. Everything, everything, you know, that you, you know, conditioned your body into, we'll just reset that, forget that, and we'll start new. And it doesn't work that way, does it? It just doesn't. That's not the way God works. That in fact, God over time is going to renew and refresh that. It's kind of like um, a couple that gets married Well, Wendy and I got married. We got married right after college, right after I graduated, literally I graduated in May. We got married in July. And where we went to college down out in the Midwest, that was pretty normal. I mean, it was not unusual. I mean, our peers we talked to, like, oh, yeah, you get married. That's great. You know, that's not, not like everyone was getting married. It wasn't unusual. We moved back to the Northeast, and a lot of our peers were like, you guys are married? Like, already? Like, so young? Like, why did you, why are you married? Why didn't you wait? Don't you want to get your jobs? Don't you want to get a career? Don't you, like, it was like odd. 
to it. And over the years, I've seen people make choices, getting married later or getting married earlier. And there's advantages, disadvantages. I see it. I hear the arguments. But one of the disadvantages or one of the challenges I've seen when, when people, the later and later that people get married, is they don't realize how much they have conditioned themselves that they have formed habits of living their life on their own. That when you get married later and later, so you've gotten maybe established in your career, you're both maybe in companies and places that you want to stay in, maybe you've rented or even purchased a house or a condo, you got mortgages, maybe you've made investments, maybe you've planned for the future with or without another person as a part of it, and then it becomes a challenge when you come together and now you're going to be one in marriage. And so you have, in many ways, also conditioned yourself to just live your life on your own. And so I see this challenge sometimes with couples that are like, you know, the biggest thing is trying to be other-focused. Because it used to be that, well, I'm just going to work late at work, and I'm just going to stay late at work. And I don't have to check with anybody. I don't have to tell anybody. And I just make that decision. But then when you're married, you're like, you better check with someone. Like, you probably ought to have a conversation that I'm thinking of staying late at work, or, you know, does this affect you? Or I'm going to make a large purchase, and I didn't have to check with anyone before. And now you have to think, okay, now I have someone to check. Now it affects someone else. Now it impacts someone else. And we have to have a conversation about that. But it takes time. Like just going for, you know, going walking through the mall. All of a sudden, you're used to walking by yourself. And you don't realize there's someone else there with you. We condition ourselves. And so eventually you have to work and discipline and your body will, you know, and your mind and your habits change. But it's like that in the spiritual walk too, that you have conditioned yourself into certain patterns and habits that in a life that you live and then you come to Christ and God wants to, in a sense, reprogram towards God's plans for your life, towards God's good habits in your life towards God's desires and laws, as Paul's calling it, in your life. And, and we're in that place where we need to look at and we need to re- realize that there are those things that have become conditioned and habituated in our bodies and our minds that, that God wants to renew. And the second point is this, that when you're in this battle, we often choose to fight in our own strength and neglect the greatest power that the Lord has given to us. See, one of the patterns, especially if you came to Christ older in life, later in life, one of the patterns you habituated, one of the patterns you conditioned yourself into was I'm going to fix myself. Self-help, self-improvement. I'm going to make it better myself. I'm going to, if there's a problem in my life, I'll fix it. I'll make myself better. And then if we come to Christ and we have that mentality and we have that way of dealing with our problems, what we're going to do is we're going to neglect one of the greatest powers that the Lord has given us to actually affect change in our life. Because oftentimes, even when we, what we take into our relationship with Christ is this fix-it mentality that says, no, 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 I'm going to do it and then God will be proud of me that I fixed myself. And that's not the way the Lord works. Let's pick it up in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul is saying in this past, a couple things I think that are significant in this passage, two kind of theological terms that, I, that uh, are important here. Paul is saying, look, you have in Christ a justification to be right with God. When you come to Christ, you are made right with God through what Jesus has done for you. But then he also is saying, when you come to Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit to not only that that Christ makes you right with God, but the Spirit gives you the power to live rightly for God. And that's a big difference from the way life was before. That's what Paul's saying. You are not alone in this struggle against the flesh. That what Jesus did for you is make you right with God. What the Holy Spirit does for you is give you the power to live rightly before God. That this power, this spirit is giving to you so it's no longer your own strength that you are doing this in, but that you are doing this in the strength of God's spirit. That it's not you who does it, but it's God who does it. Let's continue in verse five and pick it up there. And Paul continues this, talking about the spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's a lot that Paul brings out in that passage. Let me just give you four quick things uh, that is said about us when you are in Christ in this passage. One thing that's said is when you are in Christ, your mind is set on the things of the Spirit. When you come to Christ, one of the things is God is going to begin to renew and reset your mind onto the things of God, into the things of the Spirit, that your mind is going to suddenly and over time be more occupied with the things of God, and it's going as you press in and avail yourself to the Holy Spirit in your life that your 
mind gets set on those things. Second thing that's true, verse 9, that was verse 5. Verse 9 says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And we talked about this last week. That once you come to Jesus Christ, that God's Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. That just like the temple, just like the tabernacle, just that God's Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, empowering you, strengthening you to live the life that God has called you to live. That this is the greatest power you have to live the life God's called you to live. It's not your own strength. It's not your own ability. It's not your own knowledge. It's not your own skill. In fact, sometimes, a lot of times those things get in the way of you relying on the greatest power God has given you, which is the Holy Spirit that lives within you to live the life God has called you to live. And Paul says, when you come to Christ, verse nine, that spirit lives in you. Third thing he says is, he gives you a hope. He says, your mortal body, this thing you're struggling with, this body, this tent that you're living in, will one day be transformed into a glorified body, verse 11. Like Jesus's. That you won't have to worry about the struggles of this body, that the promise is that one day, your body will be made new just like the body Jesus had after the resurrection. That's a promise, that you can hope in that. Fourth thing he says is you are adopted as a son of God in verse 14. That when you come to Jesus, you're adopted as a son of God. And I want to keep that language. I know, you know, it could be tempting to say sons and daughters of God, but there's an important aspect to that language of son of God. It doesn't exclude women from coming to Christ in any way, but it is bringing across something important from the culture that Paul is writing in. Because in the culture Paul is writing in, adoption wasn't just, I'm going to bring kids into my household and take care of them. Oftentimes, what an adoption was is I'm going, I don't have an heir, and I am going to choose an heir for my family, and that was a son. So when you were adopted as a son, the patriarch was essentially saying, I am choosing you to inherit everything that I have and everything that I own. That's what it is to be adopted as a son into the family. And so it doesn't exclude women from that promise, but what they're saying is a man or a woman, when you come into the family of God, you are coming in as an heir. You are coming in to inherit everything God has for you. The Holy Spirit and all of his gifts and all of his blessings, you are coming in to inherit that. And so what Paul says is this is who you are when you come to Christ. Your mind is set on the things of the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in you, your mortal bodies will be transformed into glorified bodies, and you are adopted as an heir into the family of God. You are a child of God. And so he uses this expression that so, such that you can call God Abba Father, which was a very intimate and casual term. It was like saying daddy. And people in that day that Paul was right, they, they'd never use that term for God. It's not formal enough. And Paul's saying that's the kind of relationship you get with God when you come in through Christ. We sometimes neglect the greatest, uh, the greatest gift that God has given us in this battle and in this fight that we have. But in this battle against sin, final point this, in this battle against sin, you can't do it without God. But God won't do it without you. 
This is an important point to understand about this battle with the flesh and this battle with sin, this idea of why we do things that we don't want to do, why we end up living these lives that necessarily are acting in ways we don't want to act because you can't do it without God, but God won't do it without you. You say, where do you see that in the text? Verse 13 says this, we just read it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit God put to death the deeds of the body, that's not what it says, right? If, say these next three words with me, by the Spirit, let's do it again, by the Spirit, and the next word is what? You. So which is it, by the Spirit or you? Uh, Both. (laughs) We're not comfortable with both sometimes. We want one or the other. But Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. God, you can't do it without God. God won't do it without you when it comes to your sanctification, when it comes to making you into the person God is calling you to be. By the Spirit you put to death, and death is not pleasant, like death is like this is the struggle, this is the battle, killing things in your life, killing things off that God wants to die, not pleasant. And yet this is what God calls you to. This is what God calls us to. Because otherwise, what's the alternative? The alternative either is to redefine what God wants and say, and just write the law ourselves and say, you know, I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna just live the way I wanna live and move the goalposts into what I think God thinks is right. Or the alternative is to try and do it in our own strength and end up really with just behavior modification. Just a change on the outside. See, God's, sometimes we think that God is only interested in the change on the outside, and I don't think that's what God's after here. What God is after is a change on the inside such that our desires change, such that we desire the things that God's desire. What God wants is for us to not want to want to sin. Think about that, right? And actually, to be even more correct, if you really want to do it, what 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 we're really after is for you not to want to want to want to sin. Write it out. It actually makes sense when you think about it. This is what God's after, that you would not want to want to want to sin. And that's not going to happen by external change. That's not going to happen just by behavioral modification. That's the goal that God is after. That our lives would be changed so much that we would desire the things that God desires, but we can't do it in our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit, and yet we need the Holy Spirit, and God wants us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and it's this both and, not either or. And so the spiritual disciplines in our lives, things like prayer, scripture, solitude, silence, fasting, things like that, these are not things that make transformation happen. They are means for me to yield in a greater way to the Holy Spirit in my life who is the one who actually does the transforming work in my life. 
Right, like that's important to remember. It's not the fasting that makes me more like Jesus. It's the fasting that puts me in a position to yield more to the Holy Spirit who changes my life. It's the same with reading scripture, same with prayer, same with silence. So these things that I put in practice in my life, that you put in practice in your life, they're not the actual things that transform and change you. They're just simply means to allow the Holy Spirit to have more access to your life so that the Holy Spirit is able to change you into the person that God has created you to be. It's both and, not either or. You know, I think of it, I can think of it this way. I think of it like we would handle our, a physical struggle in our body, a physical sickness, a physical disease, right? It, that if you, you know, came to me and you said, hey, pastor, you know, I got a tough diagnosis this week, and, you know, they found something and they did a biopsy and it's cancer. And, and, and if you came to me with that, my, 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 what I would hope would happen is we would have a conversation and we would pray and we're going to pray and trust God and ask God to heal you. And we're going we're gonna to bring that to the Lord and ask him to heal you. And that you would go down to Dana-Farber or wherever they study these things. And, and you're going to get every single help that, this, that God has given us on this earth to help you get free from that sickness and disease. And both of those, when you come to the healing, it's God who did the work and did the healing who designed your body even to be able to be healed and we will give the glory and the praise to God for your healing. And it's no different in your spiritual life. But I think sometimes we come and we want one or the other. I'm just gonna go to the altar and God's gonna heal me and fix me. Or I'm just gonna do it in my own strength and then I'll come back and God will be proud of me. And by the Holy Spirit, you put to death the flesh, the deeds, the body, these things in you, that sinful nature, it's both. And so I'm relying on the Holy Spirit in everything, and I am doing everything in my power to reprogram, recondition my flesh towards the things of God. What, uh, and I'll ask our worship team to come back as we prepare to respond to God's word. I think what Paul is saying, you know, we've said this before, just a reminder, here's what's going on in our lives. God has delivered us from the penalty of sin, justification. He is delivering us, this is what we're talking about today, from the power of sin, sanctification. And one day we will be delivered from the presence of sin, which is our glorification in God's presence. And the greatest gift that God has given you for that second part, delivering us from the power of sin is the Holy Spirit in our lives. That you're not going to do it in your own strength, that it's, a, it's this both and, it's this leaning on God and his power and his spirit that's going to make it happen in your life. That's going to help you become the person that God has called you to become, to live the life that God has called you to live. And so... That looks, like, that looks like leaning into God and certainly in prayer and these disciplines I've mentioned, but it's talking honestly to God and the Holy Spirit as a person. One thing we don't want to miss in this series that we're talking about, it is the person of the Holy Spirit. And you have to maintain and, 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 and foster that relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
And so being honest and open and not hiding things in prayer. You know, I've, um, just going back to that marriage illustration for a second, you know, I've, I've talked to people sometimes and, and it, a great marriage isn't made just by doing things you're supposed to do and not doing things you're not supposed to do. I think sometimes that, that thinking is out there. Well, you know, we go on dates, we do this, we do this, we do this, and we don't do this, this, and then we don't cheat on each other, we don't do this, this, and boom, we have a great marriage. And it doesn't happen that way because there is a relational dynamic that you've got to lean in and give yourself to that other person in order for intimacy to be created, in order for a relationship to really be formed. And it's like that with the Holy Spirit, that you can't just do the things you're supposed to do and not do the things you're not supposed to do, and boom, I've got a relationship with God. Now you got to lean in. you got to give yourself over to that Spirit, to the Holy Spirit in your life. Let me close with this illustration of what's going on and what God's doing. One of my first job was to work at a, um, working at a sub shop. And uh, my favorite subs to make were the hot subs because you got to go to the griddle. And, you know, you got steak and cheese or pastrami, right? You're going over to the griddle. You know, you're throwing that on there. You hear that, right, that sizzle. And I go over there and you make your sub. And after making a couple of them, what happens? The griddle gets pretty dirty, right? You get burnt cheese on it. You get like the, the burnt, you know, steak on there. It gets pretty dirty. And th- but there was an easy way to clean it. If you've ever worked in a, in a place like that, you know what the easy way to clean it is? You just pour a little water on it, right? Pour a little water on that hot griddle and all of a sudden it, you know, sizzles and bubbles and turns to steam and you just scrape it off and, and you're all clean and you're ready to go. Here's one of the things I realized is that when I did that during the day, when it was, you know, during the middle of the day and we're making all kinds of subs and the heat's on, the griddle's hot, you'd pour that on, it would turn to steam, you'd wipe that clean and it would be all set. But when I did it at the end of the night, after we had already shut off the griddle for a while and I went back to clean it and I poured the water on it, you might have heard a little bit of sizzle because there was some heat left in the metal, but it was, didn't turn to steam and clean it the way that it did during the day because the fire had been turned off for a while. And so it ended up just being covered in water. Now, if you look at it from the outside, it might look like there was a battle going on between the water and the griddle. But you've got to look closer than that. The real battle was between the water and something you could not see, and that's the fire that was below the griddle and heating up the griddle. When the fires turned off, the water won. If the fire kept burning, the fire wins. And when the fire wins, the griddle wins. Here's the point. Some of us thought we were supposed to fight the battle in our own strength. And we don't realize that's like a griddle trying to turn water into steam on its own. It's not going to happen no matter how hard the griddle tries. You need the fire if that water is going to turn to steam and not cover the griddle. And some of us, that's what we're doing, right? We're trying in our own strength 
And we think the battle is between us and our flesh, us and sin, us and the world, us. And, and, we think, and we've come to believe that. And what's really the battle is between the Holy Spirit that lives within us and our flesh and the struggles that we have. And so God calls us to give ourselves over to him fully, to trust that he is at work to not fight the battle in our own strength, to invite his Holy Spirit. Because you can't do it without God, but he won't do it without you. It's not gonna force you to invite him in. It's not gonna force you to give control over certain aspects of your life because he's giving you that will in your life to choose to serve him, to love him or not. And so this morning, will you invite the Holy Spirit into your life? We're not gonna be perfect people. I follow Jesus, but I still sin. And so do you. But I am inviting God's Holy Spirit to lead me to sin less. I'll never be sinless this side of heaven, but I can sin less. And so can you. We can walk closer to God and who'd be the people more who he's called us to be. Lord, thank you for your word today. Even in a passage that is, uh, Lord, has a lot, so much in it and somewhat complicated, and yet, Lord, it's just where we're at in so many ways. Father, Lord, I pray that you would, God, open our ears and our hearts to see the places in our lives where we have been trying in our own strength to change ourselves, where we have been trying in our own strength to, Lord, uh, make things happen and to kill off the flesh with our own strength. But Lord, also show us, maybe there's some in this room that we're just not trying at all and just saying, if God wants it, God will change me. And Lord, I pray for that person that maybe today you would show them the actions and the things that you're calling them to do to orient their lives and their hearts and their minds towards you lord help us to live this both and that the holy spirit that by the spirit and we crucify this flesh in our bodies none of it happens through our own strength but lord you ask us to participate in this process to lead us today, even as we give ourselves over to you and respond to this word in Jesus' name.